You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We are inside the Griffey Room here tonight as we are uh, getting close to Game 2 of a three-game series against the Oakland Athletics. Aaron Goldsmith, Jerry Depoto, Colin O'Keefe, also referred to as... The maestro. Running things for us, uh, as usual. Uh, Jerry, first of all, we uh, received some constructive criticism, I feel like, from the maestro on our lack of an appetite in recent shows. Has that changed for you? Uh, it has not changed for me, although I will say that, that I, I feel akin to you know, maybe working in a sweatshop somewhere in the desert. Nobody knows it's there. We're under a mountain just cracking the whip. I, it's... It is he a has that kind of influence, is yeah, what you're saying. Yeah, it, it, it is a little overbearing. But, you know, it's I'm, I'm, I'm naturally afraid of him. <laughs> <laughs> and when he barks, I, I There's a lot of barking. Run. People don't know the barking that goes on pre-show production meeting. Uh, we, you know he has a monocle. I have seen the monocle. He's got a monocle with a string. It, it's it's a... Uh, it, it's scary. A fierce. We're going to have yeah. to do this on video eventually, just so everybody can see... It's not a complex setup. Well, but there is a monocle. There is a monocle. Thank you. Uh, two things to contribute to the uh, off-the-top food talk. I did have what I would say is the best Tex-Mex fajitas you can find. In that I didn't make? The Dallas-Fort Worth area. Okay. Uh, La Hacienda Ranch is one of my absolute favorites. I did two years of minor league baseball in DFW at the Rangers Double-A Club, and La Hacienda Ranch is a tremendous Tex-Mex restaurant. They have a honest-to-goodness mesquite wood grill, which I would say gives their steak fajitas a little extra. <laughs> I ask for, I, and I take the extra mile, I do ask for the steak on the steak fajitas, medium rare. I think that's important because they will continue to cook, obviously. That's the right. platter is warm. And then I also go the extra step and I say, oh, nicely, onions extra caramelized because – when you get the semi-raw onions on the fajitas, I mean, this is the big leagues, Jerry. That is correct. So, uh, or it was double A, you know, or double A, yeah. Even then, just had a big we, I want big heat league yeah. fajitas, even if I'm in the Texas League. Um, and we got their fajitas for two. They're like extra special fajitas for two, which had chicken, steak, and shrimp. And it was really fajitas for four, <laughs> maybe two Texans, uh, four people <laughs> from other parts of the country. Uh, it was dynamite. We had the off night, of course, in uh, in Arlington, and it was uh, one of my favorite meals of the second half for nostalgia reasons, but also just you get some good Tex-Mex fajitas in Texas, and that's the real deal. That's good stuff. I think that's right, and, and I have I, I can't recall like the best Tex-Mex I've had in in Texas, but that's kind of the go-to when you're there is, is have a steak or have Tex-Mex. Uh, there's here for me this last ten day stretch prior to last night. We were at home, so so a lot of my dining was either here locally in Seattle or with these magic paws. <laughs> and, and let me say, there was some magic. Was there magic? On. There was some magic. I, I will say on Sunday, and and I, I made the proclamation as I was getting ready to slide the the food into the oven for the for the final bake. I made the proclamation to my my daughter and son in law. This is in fact going to be the best Italian stuffed shells that I have ever made. It's a high bar. And were it's a they? high bar. And they, and they were. I, I added a couple of special touches this time around that I, I'm, I was pretty proud of. I was pretty proud of it. We, we went s- Sunday, stuffed shells with the, you know, the ricotta, mm-hmm. mozzarella, and, and mix it in the bowl before you stuff the shells. I also uh, pan-fried some pancetta, threw some pancetta in there, which is salt and pepper and some Italian parsley. All mix it up before it goes in the shells. Coated it, crushed tomatoes, came out, and it was uh, it was a bit of a flavor explosion. I felt like it was yeah, it, it was it was what I proclaimed it to be. Well, the pancetta now, is a game changer. Yeah, that, that's what it was. And you throw pancetta in anything; it's you know Italian bacon. You, you throw it in anything, and it takes it over the top. There's no question. I will say I was in Atlanta over the weekend, and I had one of the most fascinating food conversations with a guy that I have not been able to talk to my entire air quotes big league career if you can call it that 
Oh, I think it is. It is a big league. Well, company. with the wheelhouse, probably. Yeah. It's made it that. Jake Arietta. I've wanted ooh. to talk to Arietta like forever, but he's been in the National League, right? Uh, and Did I, you ask him about the body issue of Sports Illustrated? I, you know, I, I remember reading, I think it was maybe in that issue where I read possibly that he can jump onto, it's, it's not a Pilates ball, but what are the, you know, the, the big. Like a Bosa ball? Yeah. He can just jump onto one of those two feet, stay balanced, land, stick to landing, and be stable. American Ninja. Yeah. And so I asked him to confirm that, and he said, yes, he can do that. From the Dallas area. Uh, yeah. he's eaten his fair share of good text messages. TCU guy? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we talked pitching and all that stuff, and I don't want to digress too much here, but it, it was fascinating because he's, like, he's transformed his body like night and day compared to when he was just an, a guy with the Orioles, right? Uh, he, in the offseason, does this kind of intermediate fasting where he only eats Why? one meal a day, sometime between the hours of noon and four. And I said, "Okay, so like, what are you what are you crushing if you're eating one meal a day?" And he was like, "Ah, oh, you know, like a like a typical meal would be like a like a forty ounce steak and two avocados. Forty ounce steak, yeah, and two avocados. So that's how he's doing. He's not eating the potatoes. Yeah, he's just taking out forty ounces of steak. So, so the next day, I had my first ever encounter with Gabe Kapler." And you know, Gabe is like the babe. Yeah, he. I mean, it's like and I don't mean Ruth. Yeah, two percent body fat, right? Like chiseled. And I asked him what he thinks. I told him this meal for Arietta. I asked him what he thinks of it since he's Mister Fitness. And he goes, "You know, I like the steak. I wouldn't do the avocados." I said, "You don't. You don't like avocados?" He's like, "I'm on an all meat, all fat diet. Only the animal." <laughs> and at the, I'm and, laughing on the inside. <laughs> Gabe Kapler, first of all, Gabe is chiseled. And, oh, my uh, gosh. Uh, very interesting guy, super progressive thinker. This is now, I want to say, it might have been last year, the winter meetings last year. And, and it was, in fact, because I went down to the gym and, uh, and I hopped on the treadmill, which is something I will religiously do at, at all big meeting sessions because I want people to see me on the treadmill. <laughs> <laughs> And, 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 and Jerry, I like to, put a shirt yeah, on. I, I, to get involved somewhere in, in, in moving my body. But uh, I, hop, I went to hop on the treadmill, and to my immediate left, and I think we may have discussed this, is Alan Trammell. And, uh, and Alan Trammell, who had just that day found out that he was going in the Hall of Fame, and I, and I you know, gave him a high five, talked to him for a bit, big fan. And, and as, I, as I crawl on the, the treadmill, one treadmill over to my right is what appears to be an Olympic sprinter with the treadmill at a, let's call it 15, 18 degree angle, sprinting uphill at speeds known only to cheetah. <laughs> and, and I turn around and it's, and it's Gabe Kapler and I thought that, that, that all lines up. That, from the day he first debuted in the big leagues with the Detroit Tigers through a, what was a long and, and, and let's call it well-traveled career, Gabe Kapler has has kept his body in phenomenal shape to the point where, you know, when he challenges the players to to do something, I'm, I'm fairly certain there's not a player on his team that's going to be able to to outperform him physically in a moment. He's that well put together. He's a pretty intimidating guy just to be in the same room with. He was very nice, uh, and it was interesting talking to him. But the only the animal, all meat, all fat diet. Like, why how are we not all on this diet? And is that what you look like if you go to that? Apparently, if, I you, would do if that. you if you run on the incline and uh, at speed twenty one, I, I run downhill <laughs> <laughs> at slightly north of a walk. Yeah, it works for me. Well, as we are in the early stages of the final homestand of the season, uh, the A's and the Rangers for four. Jerry, first of all, what's it kind of like for you wrapping your head around the fact that baseball is coming to a close? Now, and unfortunately, every year it does. And I, from the even dating back to Little League, if, if you remember when you played Little League, you just hated the, the day of the last game because you knew you wouldn't play a game until the next spring. Uh, you know, this was before fall ball and all that started. But, you know, the, the good thing for us is though it's disappointing each time a season ends, and especially when it doesn't include you going to the postseason, 
now about 10 days from now, we'll be down in Arizona watching our kids in the Arizona Fall League. We will have our performance camp going on over in Peoria with another close to 50 players uh, and the Mariner system out there working through their, their high performance drills, their, their baseball skills stuff. And shortly after that, we'll be on a plane down to, to the Dominican Republic to watch the, the same, our, our Dominican Instructional League and another, let's call it, 45 players that are doing their thing. So it's there's baseball going on somewhere in the world. And I hate that it ends at Safeco this week, but you know, baseball for the Mariners family goes on and and I'll take I'll take some enjoyment in the fact that we get to plan now for what happens 2019 and beyond. And that's fun too. So you're really going to put your feet up in the next week it sounds like. Yeah, that's what <laughs> we do. We coast. We yeah. coast. That's why I run downhill. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. No break for you guys. Obviously, Monday night, game one of the homestand, game one of the series against the A's, was a difficult one from the standpoint that even without the A's winning, they had still clinched a postseason berth because of a Tampa Bay loss facing the Yankees. How do you assess kind of this season? Because the season for the Mariners and the season for the A's, I mean, there's a certain sense of it's tied together, right? Those two are somewhat interwoven. How do you gauge uh, those two seasons together, the wild card and the Mariners not making the postseason altogether? Well, I guess first I'll address the, the, the A's. What the A's were able to do this year, it has been phenomenal. Uh, to start where they started, to play, let's call it neutralish baseball for close to two months, and and then to be in a position here in the final week of the season to win 98, 99 games, uh, they, they that is not only within their grasp. I would say you know on the lower end of that, 97, 98 is probably likely for them. Uh, is pretty phenomenal. And to do it while incurring injuries to key pitchers, while going through the turbulence of, of running guys on minor league contracts onto their major league staff, to watch them catch a second win in their career, guys like Brett, Brett Anderson, who pitches tonight, Edwin Jackson, who pitches tomorrow. And, and, and really, it, it's, to do it with less than household names is it's a great achievement. And you have to give credit where it's due. I've, I've said before, you know, Billy, Dave Forrest, Billy Owens, uh, it, it, the group with the Oakland A's, they're one of the smartest in baseball. I think they do a, a great job year in and year out with their resources. They, they, they know how to put together a team that works in their market with their resources. And they know they're not going to be a World Series contender every year but they build teams that are wildly entertaining or competitive when they get into their cycle. Nobody thought this team was in the cycle yet, and they are. And that's, a, I think, a tribute to them. And I don't know, moving forward, that we'll ever see another season come to pass where you have to win 97, 98, or maybe 99 games to win the second wild card in, in a league. And, you know, if, I, if, if anything gives me some degree of peace – We've talked about it before. We, we've we've long built teams with the idea that we're going to target the mid 80s and wins, and and if things crest the right way for us, we're going to win 90, 92, and if things crest the wrong way, we're going to win 78 or 80. And and when we tap into that next wave of young talent, now you can start the bidding at 90, 92, and when you crest, you're in the mid 90s. We don't have that that wave of young talent, so we're building in that same general ballpark that we discussed before. What we were not prepared for, and I don't know that anybody could be, was that we will we'll wind up winning 87, 88 games before maybe 89, before this season comes to, to fruition. And we will have, have fallen short of the second wild card by as many as 10 games, which is kind of phenomenal when you think about it. it a, I, I think the average second wild card winner since the advent of the position has been roughly 90 wins. Uh, 89 and a half, 90 wins. And, you know, to have the bar this high, it, it, it's a testament to the Oakland A's and no less disappointing for us. But we go home over the weekend and they go off to play the Yankees. And, I, and I've seen momentum uh, carry before and that team has it. So It's interesting because when you look at the A's in recent years, they've had years where they have won the division and then the next year they're not nearly as competitive. They're probably the most difficult team to try to predict year in and year out in the American League. When you look at this lineup that they have, and particularly right now the bullpen, which of course they added to it, is this a team that in your eyes is going to be a real challenge for any team in the American League for the next couple of years? It depends on what they do with their pitching, you know, and, and that's where two things are really going to help them. One, again, they have really smart people who run their club. Two, they have a ton of fungible payroll. It, it, the, the room that they have to, to operate, whether it's 
departing free agents, guys like Jarius Familia, you know, I guess they have the option on or can move on from Fernando Rodney. It's Jed Lowry. They're going to lose some players in the in the lurch here, Jonathan Lucroy. But they have a, a very good young base, guys like Matt Chapman, Matt Olson, uh, the, the like. They still maintain control of Marcus Simeon, of Blake Trinan, of Chris Davis, who's having another phenomenal year. And, and they had a couple of real breakouts for this year from guys who've been in the league a little while. Guys like Mark Canna really stand out. And what they choose to do or what they can do with their pitching, you know, next year they're not going to have Sean Mania for, for most or all of the season. A lot of the bullpen does go away, and they have to figure out how to rebuild it. My sense is that they will because they're the Oakland A's, and they usually figure out a, a, a way to do that. But they're position players. You know, I, I think it would sneak up on people in a league that has the Boston Red Sox. Uh, of Mookie Betts, J.D. Martinez, etc. You know Xander Bogarts, right? the Yankees, and D.D. Gregorius, and Aaron Judge, and Giancarlo Stanton, and the like, and you know the 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 Houston Astros with Carlos Correa and Jose Altuve, and and George Springer, and and that group. The the largest total F WAR number for a position player group this year to date is the Oakland A's, and. You know, that's kind of what we've been dealing with all year is that, that this team is a lot better than people gave it credit for being. And, you know, it's it's maybe no knockout superstar coming into the season, but a lot of really good players who had really good years. And on the tail end of the season, I do think they have a knockout superstar that the world just hasn't caught on to yet. And that he had a homer last night, Matt Chapman. Is, is a phenomenal player and maybe one of the true underrated stars in this league. Just to put a bow on that, Jonathan Lucroy, who, of course, spent the back half of last season with the Rockies, said, I watched Nolan Arenado. Chapman's better than Arenado. And Arenado, crazy. Arenado was the standard, right, at third base, especially when you talk about a complete player, and even with altitude and elevation. But you're right, Chapman is remarkable, and his second half in particular has been absurd. One thing we brought up last night on the telecast that I said at the time, I'm eager to talk to Jerry about this, and you look at starting pitching around the major leagues right now, Jerry, the Mariners are the only team in baseball to have five starters make at least 25 starts, which in and of itself in today's starting pitching climate is impressive. On the heels of what the Mariners went through last year, seems almost unbelievable, right? A franchise record in pitchers and starting pitchers. When you think about that and the fact that one of those guys, Wade LeBlanc, wasn't even really in spring training with the club, how good does that make you feel that you've had that much durability in the rotation? It's it's kind of shocking, you know. I, I guess in that way we're a throwback. We, we've a throwback to like three years yeah, ago. <laughs> yeah, you remember back to like 2015. <laughs> it, it is a it is a bit of a throwback in, in in that we were able to do that. We also have a chance to have each of our starters qualify for the ERA title, which is just not a thing anymore. <laughs> and, no, you had nobody last year. Yeah, I mean it's unbelievable. We didn't have one and. You know, I do think this year, minimally, I think minimally we're going to have three. We have a chance to have five, depending on how they, they come out of their last start. But And can you explain you know, that real quick, how to qualify, what that means to have a Roughly one inning pitched for every game the team plays is, is the way it works out. So count 162 innings is going to be the, the cutoff. And, and Mike Leake's already there. I believe Marco's there. Uh, I think Wade's right on the, the, the precipice. It's, they're, they're right. All of our guys have landed in that general zone. And, you know, that kind of durability, it's really helped. Our bullpen, I think, has been one of the best in the league over the course of the year. I think just top three or four in almost every category uh, that, that there is in the, in the American League, except for innings pitch. We're 11th. And you know, I think the that's that's how we've been able to maintain that group is we're not asking them to pitch a ton, and they're able to stay fresh as a result. The obvious exceptions being Edwin Diaz and Alex Colomay, who because of the the positions they have and the and the number of one run games we've played, they did pitch a lot for five months. Unfortunately, they've gotten some time off here <laughs> recently. They're not being overworked. But, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of what our pitching staff was able to accomplish. And, and I think the idea that we were able to, for lack of a better way to put it, cobble together a rotation that was representative. And, and if you – I said it at, at the end-of-year conference and then again in the pre-spring training press conference, 
we really didn't view anyone outside of what we thought were the elite teams in the American League, you know, those being the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Indians, and the Astros as having a clearly better pitching staff than we had. And that wound up being true. You know, we, we wound up fifth in the league, roughly, in most every category. And I, I don't want to take any great pride in the fact that we finished fifth in the league, but we finished fifth in the league where we could have gone out and spent X number of dollars on free agents and still finished fifth in the league, <laughs> if not if not worse than that. So, you know, here's to Wade LeBlanc and here's to Marco Gonzalez taking a huge step forward. You know, here's to Mike Leake and the general steadiness he's provided all year long. That's huge. Uh, and to James Paxton, who when, when he's right, James Paxton is as dominant as anybody. And, you know, it would be nice to, to be able to churn out 30 starts or 32 for, for the guys. But if as long as Mike Leake gives us that stability and we have the thump of the others, I, I don't think we could have imagined a better season for our starting rotation. Truly couldn't. Uh, they're not superstars. They're not household names. And these guys put together a really good season. With under a week now left in the season, do you start thinking or having conversations about possibly shutting certain guys down? You know, and we had those conversations coming into the month of September just to let the the players tell us when when they need to be shut down. And, you know, I, coming out of the the series with the, the, the Rangers, as well as, as Marco Gonzalez pitched, as, as often and as he's pitched, wanting to get Paxton and Felix back in the rotation, uh, Mike Leake will throw two more times before the season ends. I don't think there's anybody that just naturally has to be shut down. And, you know, we, we want to make sure we allow these guys to finish on a strong note. And there is something of a of a a feeling of satisfaction when a pitcher gets from pole to pole in a season and finishes it, regardless of, of your team's position in the standings. You know, that's what they're out there to do. The starting pitcher is wired to be like the Iditarod racer. They're, you know, they, they just keep chugging along. And, and the, the, they have to put their head down and pitch every fifth day, and that's what they do. And, and I think they're all going to get to the end of the, to the road healthy. And, you know, knock on wood, they've all had pretty good years for their skill sets. And, and I think the, the – well, the, the obvious exception being it just hasn't been a good year for Felix. But the rest of the group did a good job. And, and, uh, and really, it, they held up their end of the bargain. And the, the rest of the team certainly fell short in some other areas, but I think they did their job. When you talk about finishing strong, Mike Zunino seems like he could be on that path. You look at what he's been doing offensively, call it the last 10 games or so, batting nearly 270. The walk rate is up. Strikeout rate has kind of leveled out at a more appropriate level. Have you seen something different with Zunino? You know, Mike is just prone to this. And we've seen it periodically over my three years here, over his time in the big leagues. You know, when Mike gets hot, he is awesome to watch. And and the power, the velocity coming off the bat, the confidence and swagger in the batter's box. And, and when he gets it rolling, it can last sometimes, you know, four or six weeks. And, and he just gets hot as fire. And we've seen it on the other end where when, it, when, when inevitably you won't stay hot forever. You know, Mike's not hot can sometimes be particularly cold. But when Mike, Mike's hot, he looks like, you know, the next coming of <laughs> Mickey Cochran. I don't know. I mean, it's, he's out there bombing and it's, it's velocity off the bat. And you could see somewhere on this road trip, and, and, I, and I think it was probably, you know, the first couple of nights in Houston, that ballpark suits him so, so well. And when he got into Houston, you could just see the peacock feathers come up, and you knew that there was a little different swagger to him. And it's good to see him finish on a strong note. It has not been his best year. But like has been the case with Mike, he, he provided defensive value for us. He did hit his 20 homers. And as a general rule, if we can just get him back to where he was, taking those walks like he was in 2016 in the second half, and then last year in the second half when he got hot, if he'll just take those walks, it, it, it changes the whole world for Mike Zanino. And that's what we're seeing now is he's swinging at better pitches. I have, I think, a really good stump JD for you this week, Jerry. You know, somebody dropped this. Out. I, you know, I, somebody tweeted me this, and yep. I meant to respond to them. What was the yeah. question they asked embarrassing. Because they said yeah. that they kind of got you. They, they got me, but I, have worn I you will down. say this. I have, I've just I've – just Made you so susceptible to stump JD on the street now. I, I, I feel have like no, I'm confidence. Much. no confidence. No confidence. The peacock feathers. You're They're in my at pocket, every pitch bro. outside the zone. So Wait, what happened? Did yeah, somebody yeah, approach yeah. Jerry on yes. the street with yes. the stump JD? Yes. Yeah. Some random just grabbed me. No, no. 
I, I was yesterday, I was speaking to a leadership group from Boeing. And at the end of the, you know, just normal management, business, how the Mariners do things, et cetera. And at the end of the, the, the session, it was question and answers. And, and one of the guys raised our hands and says, I have a stump JD. <laughs> And I said, oh, man. <laughs> we are mainstream. Yep, nice here we go. Nicely done. Yep, that's it. Monocle. We have – so I get the stump JD, and he said three players from the 1965 draft were – from the, the very first draft were – went on to become Hall of Fame players. Who were they? And I said, Nolan Ryan. Yes, that's one. And I said, uh, uh. – he said one was a catcher. And it, it was it, – it, I said – catcher uh where are we going stumbling around and he said johnny bench so to be fair i didn't really get a chance to answer he answered oh no me. that's not yeah that's, that's bush league and it's then derek the, by the way derek i apologize i have not responded back to you on twitter but he, he let me know about this and but now i was struggling i'm not gonna yeah i'm no, not gonna i was struggling now this is where it gets just utterly unacceptable oh and oh but it gets acceptable because there's 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 a nuance to this the 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 third answer was Tom Seaver. And I said, he said, pitcher, I'm going to give you a hint. I said, Don Sutton. Nope, not Don Sutton. Not Don Sutton. I said, come on. He said, he said, it's your guy. It's Tom Seaver. The reality, I believe, is that Tom Seaver went into a special draft. He was not part of the June draft. So on a technicality. Are you hearing this? That's, I was weak to, sauce, to be man. fair. I was ready for it to be like a basketball Hall of Famer, and for this guy to be like to go like pure Aaron Goldsmith and be like, yeah, well, well yeah. I mean, he was in the baseball draft, but he won the. Everybody's trying to screw me on technicalities. The the Tom Seaver. Did drop? you know? Can we cut that? Did, did, did you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's season two of the Wheelhouse. Yeah, we got drops perfect. and whistles yeah, and bells and everything. So so Tom Seaver is the only baseball player who was selected. That his selection came out of a hat. No. Yeah. The New York Mets and the Atlanta Braves were effectively called to MLB headquarters, and, and they picked out of a hat to see who got the, the right to sign Tom Seaver. Oh, my gosh. I, that's imagine being a Braves was. fan for, like, the next 25 years. Yeah, exactly. Well, I guess they've had it fun after that. They've had it fun. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know, man. Baseball reference is making this look pretty clear cut. Are they? They are not. They will not. They won't. No, oh, 20th. 20th overall, 1966. They have, repeat oh, that. Please repeat now, that. Now, this is interesting. 20th overall, 1960 what? Uh, they say 1966. What did he 1966, say? 1966, 1965, which is the year of the first draft, because after the 1965 draft, they had to, they had to choose out of a hat to see who got the right to pick him. So the Mets, the Mets picked Tom Seaver. Okay. Uh and I, I, so now, so I don't know if that's true. It could just be urban legend. So do you, do you feel better about yourself? That you made Derek all. feel terrible? No. In I, front I, of a Boeing crowd? No, he got me. He made me feel like a you, So both of you guys lose on this. <laughs> it sounds like he got you in front of the crowd, but now Derek will listen to this and be like, oh, come on. Yeah, yeah, Derek's Sorry, just Derek. like yelling in his yep. car right now. Yep, Derek's uh, got technicality. It's very interesting. Uh, there is a nuance to that, though, in, in reality. Not that I, not that I got the answer to the question. Derek stumped me, made me feel like a fool. He's much smarter than I, and I will say he was a handsome fellow. Oh, really, um, Derek? All right, that's saying something. <laughs> All right. Um, well, this, you know, I'm, I don't know enough about like draft history because it has changed so much. I mean, just the format of it, the way. At least it, have five drafts a year. Yeah, I that? mean, exactly. And so I'm. It's something I'm always curious to learn more about, and I, I need to. That'll be a part of a, a winter research project. Is knowing more about that. But uh, nice stall tactic, by the way. Your stump JD question this week. Once again, it's very straightforward, and I think you're going to get this immediately. O'Keefe got it. Really? Like immediately? This he is just had to think easily of the, name, the which one. I know is the whole point of this. But like he knew it. He was spinning the wheels, and then within like ten seconds, he got it. Okay. Jerry, tell Edgar me. Martinez. <laughs> Jerry, tell me the name of the individual who invented the batting glove. Ken Hawk Harrelson. Yeah. Now I now I feel good for Jerry. I feel I feel like I just donated to charity. That's how I feel. Right <laughs> it was. I, t- I don't need your charity. <laughs> <laughs> now the reason why this is topical, of course, is that Hawk just 
had his last telecast on oh, Sunday. I didn't know that. He officially retired. He's kind of been moonlighting as the you know, for you know for a while. He only did road games, um, and then he only did some select home games. I mean, he lives in Indiana. He like lives by Notre Dame, I think. That's right. Um, and awesome guy. Well, here we go. This is gonna be the first time that we are gonna play outside sound in the wheelhouse. A couple of years ago, when Hawk was still traveling more mainstream around the American League, he was, of course, at Safeco Field. And I'll be honest, as at the time, I was a relatively new Major League broadcaster. I mean, Hawk is, I mean, like, he is an he's intimidating a guy, yeah, right? He's a big deal. Like, you know he's got a take on everything. Uh, he will put anybody in their place, including big league umpires, on TV. So what would he do to me, right? And so the great Kevin Kremen... Uh, producer engineer extraordinaire for 35 years with the Mariners. I'm talking to Kevin. I'm like, I think Hawk would be, I know Hawk would be a great interview, but I don't know if what he'd be like. Like, would he even say yes? And I'll never forget, Kremen said, oh, Hawk's a peach. And which is the last thing you'd ever think to describe Hawk Harrelson, right? Well, he was a peach. And I asked him to tell me the story of how he invented the batting glove. And he tells it better than you could ever hope. And this is Hawk telling the full story on inventing the batting glove. Well, necessity is the mother of invention. And I was a kid, I was platooning in Kansas City. And uh, the Yankees came to play. And that's the only time we ever drew any people in Kansas City was the Yankees would come in. So I wasn't going to play that day. They were going to pitch a right-hander named Jim Coates. So I went to play golf. Uh, Sammy Esposito and Gino Simoli would play Ted Bosfield and myself. My first two, two years in the big leagues, you know, the minimum salary is $6,000. I actually made more money playing golf, shooting pool, and arm wrestling than I did playing Major League Baseball. So I went out, we played 27 holes of golf that day. So I get to the ballpark. I went right from the golf course to the ballpark. And I look in the lineup. I'm in there. The Yankees made a switch. They're going to pitch Whitey Ford. So now I'm in there hitting third. So don't you know, I'm taking batting practice, and I, get, I wore a little blister right there on my ring finger by the 27 holes of golf. And I remembered I had my golf glove up in my jeans up in the, the clubhouse. So I went up there and got that. The game starts. I come to bat in the bottom of the first inning, and I got this flaming red golf glove on. I want to tell you, Yankees wore me out. <laughs> they were on me so bad, I can't even say uh, what they were calling me and everything else. So don't you know Whitey hung me a curveball? And I hit it about 450 over that left center field fence for a home run. Well, about the sixth inning, I come back up there again, and they're still on me, but not as bad as they were. Don't you know you hung me another one, and I hit it over that left center field fence again. So the next day, the Yankees come out of the clubhouse, and they all had red golf gloves on. Mantle had the clubby go buy a couple of dozen golf gloves, and they all put them on, and that's how the golf, that's how the hitting glove got started. Is that not perfectly told or what? There's, first of all, if you could teach somebody how to tell a story, that's how you do it. That's how you do it. I mean, the, the idea, I love, there's so many things I love about that story. First of all, the I made more money playing golf, shooting pool, and arm wrestling than I did playing baseball. I mean, is that not one of the greatest lines? And just his delivery, his voice, of course, is just has so much charm to it. Uh, and don't you know he hung don't another you know. one? Yeah. Don't you know? In fact, a little inside trick on radio every once in a while, I'll say, and don't you know? And every time I say that, Rick giggles. And it's all because of this Hawk story. Because just the way that he says that, I just fell in love with it immediately. It's very Hawk. It's very Hawk. There's the, he, the, the players of that generation that, that played in the 50s, 60s, even into the 70s, their ability to, to spin a yarn is unbelievable. I, I, I can remember going to my very first Major League Spring Training camp. And, and if I told you this story, just slap me and tell me to stop. But uh, I went to my very first Major League Spring Training camp as a non-roster invite. And, and I'm, I'm in camp, and Bob Feller walks into the clubhouse. And, you know, we're, we're at old High Corbett Field, you know, the home of Major League. And, and Bob Feller walks in. And after the workout's over, he's, he, he sits down and starts telling stories. Sits at a picnic table in the middle of the clubhouse. And starts telling stories, and I am riveted to to the stories. I'm listening to every one of them like it's the first time I've ever heard a human being speak. And my wife is sitting out in, in their our you know forerunner reading a book because we only had one car. She had to come pick me up, and I sat in there listening to Bob Feller for like two hours. And I, I walked out and I got in the car, and she said, "Honey, where were you?" And I and I said, 
Bob Feller was telling stories. She said, could you have run out and told me that he was going to be there? I said, honey, it was Bob Feller. <laughs> so you, you don't tell him to stop talking. Their ability to tell stories, I think it inspired me to, you know, to, to as I went through my career, remember who you meet, what you see, what happened along the way. Because someday you're going to be able to sit down like Hawk just did and tell a story about it. That is, it, it connects generations. You know, Ted Bosefield's family might remember who Ted Bo- Bosefield was, but to connect Ted Bosefield with Mickey Mantle in the same story <laughs> is awesome. It's just pure awesome. And the idea of all the Yankees with red batting, I mean, of course, the batting glove had to be red. Didn't it? I mean, to make the story really pop, the glove had to be red, which is what makes it so spectacular. And to think, I mean, hopefully for a lot of our listeners, if they are having the thoughts that I had did initially, it is, oh, yeah, there was a time where the glove wasn't a thing. Like somebody had to start the batting glove. And that's how it was born, which I find remarkable. And uh, congrats to Hawk. I know he's such a polarizing guy because he has – there's so few guys with personalities, right, who do what he does and we do who really are unbridled in showing it. And so that, I know that is not always uh, as smooth as silk. Uh, but he's been in the game for 50 years. Yeah, it's more than that. You know, Hawk, Hawk went right from the booth to, to the GM chair. And and went to the GM chair and put together a winning team, you know, <laughs> which is kind of phenomenal. He's he's experienced so much in in his baseball life, and every time that you approach Hawk Harrelson, whether it's to say hello, to ask him to tell a story, or to ask him about what he saw in yesterday's game, he can't wait to tell you. Yeah, it's a it, it truly is. He's he's a joy to spend time around. Congrats to Hawk, and uh, hopefully, uh, I'm guessing he'll probably be playing some golf in retirement. Perhaps with a professional a golfer. Yeah. I mean, he was he was legit. Maybe some arm wrestling too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, on to some listener questions. Congratulations once again for getting stumped, JD. Right, you were in a, a horrible slump. I wasn't. Yeah. I think, clearly, I was. <laughs> it was Mariners second half, two thousand eighteen. I was embodying the people. Uh, Scott in Seattle, Jerry is a curious. I don't know if you have a, a tradition of some kind here. Uh, possibly, what is your favorite? Post last game of the year, baseball season is over. Meal. Oh, I thought I was going somewhere else with that. <laughs> uh, first, do you have a, a game? One sixty two is in the books. Season is over with. You're going to eat. Do you have a tradition? Any ritual? We don't have a tradition or a ritual, but there's. I do at this time of year. I get kind of chomping at the bit for for what I would call like fall or winter foods, and we really don't we, because home games. I eat at the ballpark every night, and uh, unless we're playing a day game. And when the team travels, you're not eating at home very often. So when the season ends, my wife is is like she's she's got it going on. It's it's we're gonna have chili one night. We're gonna do like a chicken and dumplings one night. We'll have the homemade soups. She does a killer like chicken noodle soup that it sounds pretty basic, but it's oh, oh no, it's a not killer basic. chicken noodle yeah. soup is off the charts. And I think the uh, she does a, a tomato and 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 rice with grilled cheese combo that is not like your normal. It's let's just say it's elevated uh, is the best way to put it. Simple comfort foods, things that make you feel like fall. Sure, right? that's that's kind of end of season for me. I'm right there with you. I don't I don't have a tradition for post game 162. Of course, it depends if we're on the road or at home, right? Now, most of the time in recent years, we've ended at home. I guess we've normally gotten we've done a lot of sushi. Our favorite sushi place in East Lake, uh, Sushi Capo Tomorrow. We normally end up going over there, uh, but now that we have two kids, maybe it'll be takeout. It's, it's just easier that way. Too expensive. It's, it's you easier don't for feed everybody. the kids. Or? Oh, they're not. It's yeah. just it's just are wonderful children they just have a way of ruining meals out that's right that's right (laughs) they can they can have the leftover scraps exactly you guys will go for Uh, the sushi Uh, anders had a really interesting question as well and to be fair is i always have the advantage in stump jd obviously and i had the advantage that you know the answer because you (laughs) researched and studied it (laughs) i had the advantage here to actually be able to think about it a little bit and i kind of wish i had more time still do you have a favorite moment that comes to mind for you this season non-on-the-field baseball-related? Like something in the realm of Mariners baseball or your interactions around the major leagues this year, but having nothing to do with what actually happens between the lines? 
Wow. So this could be an interaction in a front office. It could be an interaction in a radio booth, et cetera. Absolutely. Anything. A couple of things. One, when we were – and I'm on the fly here, so I might be going all over the place. Uh, We were in Oakland, and this was the last trip that we went through Oakland. And on Sunday morning – and this is – we're in September – and uh, the Oakland A's are, are playing roughly 900 baseball for months at a time. And it was a Sunday morning where traditionally, and I, by traditionally I mean for the last two decades, Major League teams, and, and actually a little longer than that, Major League teams don't hit on Sunday mornings. You know, you come out for a Sunday day game and the guys generally go through some easy stretching exercises, take a few passes in the cage, and you go play the game. It's kind of a recovery day, so to speak. And oftentimes on Sunday, you'll, you'll see a lot of the extras get an opportunity to get a day, uh, you know, start a game. And here we are with the Oakland A's bearing down on a, on a, a postseason berth. And uh, on Sunday morning, I'm sitting up in the, in the press box working on the computer waiting for the, the day's activities to start. And there's about 20 guys out on the field. Now it's, our rosters have expanded. There's about 20 guys out on the field with Matt Williams. They're, they're third base coach and, and infield guy and they're going through like a full-blown infield and, and defensive drills which you just don't see anymore and and I found that to be so refreshing and you know I I it'll be burned in my brain that you can still do fundamental and and, and wise baseball things even if it's on Sunday morning and you know that stuck with me I thought that was fantastic uh really going back to our trip through uh the East in June. I, I think I mentioned it wasn't my favorite trip in terms of, of kind of what happened on the field, but my wife traveled with me that trip and we got to go to some awesome restaurants and we took in a couple of Broadway shows and, and watched a game with my friend Robert Wool, uh, who is one of the funniest people you'll ever be around, who also happens to be incredibly knowledgeable in, in terms of kind of present day baseball. You know, that was a real joy. And I think just the, the general vibe around the city of Seattle throughout the first three months of the season when we really could not have, have expected our, our, our lives to be any better. Uh, riding on top of the world and, and winning night after night and doing it in fun and unique ways and the person at the grocery store being excited about it and the person somewhere on a, at a restaurant down First Avenue being excited about it. That was really cool. Uh, so while it wasn't connected to the vibe in the ballpark every day, it's what was happening around the city uh, that was so fun and really makes it even sadder that the, that the week comes to a close without us getting to the postseason. But hopefully the, the fans, the group had some fun along the way and, and we'll remember this as a positive Mariner season instead of one that, that ended in disappointment. I think my favorite is definitely Derek stumping you in a public venue for Stump JD, <laughs> letting us know that this this podcast thing is working, right? This it has legs. We're getting to the mass. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, w- I will say, bouncing off Jerry's point, that is the best though. Like early in the season, June, July, I would go out because I mean, we get done with work at different times, and everybody else gets it done to work, and that can produce some interesting results. I mean, of course, you you know, you go home, I go out with my fiance. It's eleven, eleven thirty, and we're going out for our first drink. So. That means everybody else is out. If there was a Mariners game for sure. maybe their sixth, seventh drink. But still, you get into these bars. My brother's live by a place called Lenny's Bar and Grill. And it's you go in there, and everybody's still got their Mariners jerseys on. They're riding high because we're – I mean, at that point, even when you were 13 games over 500 earlier, we're going, this is insane. This is nuts. There's no particular moment, but it's just – you know, the, everybody's got their jerseys on still. They're fired up. The game's back on the TV. The replay's on. You're going, oh, yeah, this is when uh, Denard hits the double down the line or, oh, this is when that type of thing happens. And it's just uh, pretty unreal. And if I'll tack on one more, one last thing was being on the bus when Gene got the call that he was going to make the All-Star team was pretty cool. Uh, I got a call from – I don't travel on the road, uh, like, at all. This was my first road trip. Went to Anaheim and included things like our shoot on the beach – uh, riding back in a very old minivan with the best closer in baseball. <laughs> After playing <laughs> basketball on the beach with <laughs> yeah, him. Yeah, exactly. But still, yeah, Greg Reed called me, and they put you on, Jerry, and that was a good time. And then uh, moments later, Guillermo Heredia, in his best broken English, was giving it his best shot. He goes, hey, uh, everybody, Gene, make the all-star. And it was everybody just, what, really, this happened? And it was it was fantastic. Everybody just busted up about that. But yeah, a lot of moments on, uh, especially the first half, but then even continuing on afterwards. That's cool. You got to be on that bus ride. That's very cool. 
It also included us sitting in the first seat on the way back and Blauer saying, hey, uh, 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 guys, the, the coaches are going to sit up there. <laughs> <laughs> so Mike Blauer, well, only constant one way to pro learn. helping yeah. us out, making sure we get learn. somewhere in the middle. You know, when I was thinking about it, uh, and it's you know, the season, of course, so many days and so many moments, but the one thing that stands out, you know, I love tape. Like, I love radio tape that you can go back and listen to 100 years from now, right? Because we have – the Mariners have done just a remarkable job, and Kevin Kremen is a, a big reason why, of keeping these archives. And it's more than just highlights, right? We know all the Dave highlights, which are so iconic and so Hall of Fame. Uh, but there are all these other conversations that we have on archive, on now digitally restored in some ways, of, of old conversations between players and broadcasters or two broadcasters, uh, maybe both are in the Hall of Fame now. And this year, the Mariners played the Giants twice, which meant that we had two opportunities to have John Miller on our roundtable on the pregame show. And there are a lot of broadcasters in this game where when you listen to them, you say, man, that guy is so good and so much better than me. But, man, maybe if I like, if I keep learning, right, and I keep working hard and I get better every year, like maybe one day I can, like, in 25 years and 30 years, I can be, like, in that bracket, right? You spend one minute around John Miller and you say, well, I'll never be anywhere close to that. Because John, aside from being a Hall of Fame play-by-play man, is one of the great storytellers of all time, and he does impressions like you couldn't ever even dream of. And on two separate roundtables, he did my favorite, which is he did Vin Scully in three different languages. He does Vin Scully in English, in Spanish, and in Japanese. And it (laughs) is incredible. And then he did an impression of the old... Brooklyn native PA guy from like Yankee Stadium in 1950 or something and and he even knows how to manipulate the microphone on his headset to make his voice sound differently I mean it's like Bob Shepard the degree no this is like from like like Brooklyn Dodgers days almost oh, wow, wow. yeah I mean it was just incredible audio and it's things that we will have forever and at some point John Miller will retire right and when that happens and those pieces of sound become 10 times more valuable than they already are. And so just to be thinking about it, I, I mean, six years ago, I'm in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, trying to get through an international league season, right? And now I'm an arm's reach away from one of the greatest play-by-play men of all time, giving us the greatest stories you've ever heard in every imaginable voice. And it's just moments like that where you go, man, how, how did I get here? And uh, those, are, those are some of the great personalities of the game. And to be in the same room, on the same air, at the same time, like man, who 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 do I have to pay? Uh, so pretty cool stuff for all three of us. That's those are good memories. Well, the uh, final homestand, of course, is underway here uh, of the 2018 season. Uh, we have Mariners value games presented by BECU tonight and tomorrow night. So fifteen dollar and thirty dollar seats. You can find more information, of course, at Mariners.com. A uh, Friday fan appreciation night fireworks show brought to you by T-Mobile afterwards, and that's the night where we're just like giving away TVs like all the time. Like you walk in and you got a good chance of taking home a TV, and a big one at that. Every single inning, TV for Every inning. sports. Okay. Uh, Saturday, King Griffey Jr. Pop Collectible Night, presented by Funco. 20,000 fans taking one of those beauties home. And, of course, Sunday, about the kids, Kids Appreciation Day, final home game of the season. And remember, that's a 12-10 first pitch, not 1-10 since all the games start at the same time these days game 162 so all kids 14 and under take home a mariners moose poster uh, jerry i know we'll be doing this probably one more time before we get a little bit of a uh, hiatus uh, for the fall into early winter uh, so we got episode 37 coming up in uh, probably just a few days from now so thanks for the, taking the time here on the final homestand at this point i can't wait to start talking about 219 and beyond like where we go from here I grew up a Giants fan here in the Bay Area, and the Giants played mostly day games in those days at Candlestick, the early 60s. Tuesdays and Fridays were the only days of the week that they would play a night game because it was too cold was the only reason I could figure. 
Now comes September, and they're in a pennant race with the Dodgers. 62 was a, one, of the, one of the great pennant races, and they finished tied, and they had the best of three playoff to determine the pennant winner. And so the Giants would play in the afternoon, and then I would tune in the Dodgers. They were on a very powerful station, KFI, 50,000-watt station. And at nighttime, it, come, it would come in like a local station here. And I'd listen to Vinny do, do those games. And so I heard Vinny a lot as a kid. And I was a total Giants fan. I hated the Dodgers. I hated Maury Wills especially. And I thought, uh, and, and, and Russ Hodges and Lon Simmons had home run calls. Russ would say, uh, you know, tell it, bye-bye, baby, when the Giants hit a home run. And you get goosebumps if, as a Giants fan. And, you know, Lon would tell it, goodbye, and goosebumps again. And I heard Vinny do a home run. He was like, oh, way back in, she's gone. You know, I remember thinking as a 10-year-old, oh, no wonder he's working on a jerkwater town like L.A. If that's all he's got. I'll tell you one thing, he's never going to get out of that town. And that was the one thing I was right about as a 10-year-old. You know, all these years he was still there. (laughs) 67 years. But you used to have a lot of young guys you'd get tapes from guys uh, hoping to get a shot in the big leagues and f- for a long period of time they all sounded like vince scully yeah. it was as if they all said yeah. how do you do this thing well he's the best so i should just sound like vince scully and and i thought well that's a great tribute to vinnie and then uh so i would say uh, then we went to japan and i had a chance at long last to hear the legendary voice of the tokyo giants uh, genshiro asami who was a real guy, by the way. <laughs> I hope so. And so I knew of the legend of Asami-san, but I'd never heard Asami-san. So I had a great sense of uh, anticipation. I turned on the, the TV to, at long last hear him, mm-hmm. and it put me off a little bit because he came on and he was doing Vinny. No way. Otashi wa karaku in the stadium ni orimas. Hajime mashde dozyarushku lo. I actually That's had a chance hilarious. to do that with Vinny one night on a, back in the, sometime in the 80s. He was still doing the game of the week on NBC. Yeah. And I was with the Orioles in Seattle. Ah, Seattle, you beautiful town. If you have a it chance is. to get up there, I'd go. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Spend as much time as you can up there. I'm planning. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the guy ultimately asked about the Vince Scully impression. Yeah. So Vinny's in a studio in New York. I'm in a studio in Seattle. And we're in this satellite hookup. So I do the Vince Scully in Japanese thing. And now Vinny, in New York, he starts speaking Japanese, which I thought, whoa, now that's cool. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, you know, and I had another bit where I, he's down in, uh, I, I go to Venezuela and hear the Venezuelan broadcaster and, uh, uh, you know, Cal Ripken tiene 27 home runs en el año detrás. Ripken viene a bola, saca, foul. Dos y dos. El partido de baseball con Farmer Juan. <laughs> so, anyway, the, at the it, very end of the thing, the guy says, uh, well, Vinny, uh, John does this little impression of you, and uh, how do you feel about that? And he says, uh, well, I can see that there's a fine line between having fun and making fun, but I take it as all being done in good fun. Although, I will say, I'm much happier being the imitatee rather than the imitator. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. So now I'm, I leave the studio and I'm walking downtown. I'm heading over to the Pike Street Market or whatever. And mm. I'm thinking to myself, having fun, making fun. <laughs> and uh, having the imitatee. And I'm thinking, wow. And this is 20 minutes after things over. I'm thinking, did he just cut me up into a thousand pieces? <laughs> and you and never I'm do just it. now realizing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs>